Thank you, Bob, for sharing our scripture reading with us this morning. We're going to finish up today uh, this series that we began at the first of the year called called Reset, as we've been looking back to the early church to see what they were all about so that we can understand what we should be all about. We we believe that they serve as a model for us, not just a, a jumping off point that we might get on to other more modern things, but that we might be reminded that the faith once for all delivered to the saints is the same faith that we want to cling to. The things the early church was about are the things that we want to be about. As, as Matt said earlier, they were about exalting God, worshiping the Lord. That was key uh, to what they were about as God's people. Uh, they were about edifying one another and growing in their faith in Christ. Again, that's what we want to be about. And they were about evangelism. They were about reaching the lost. And, and because of that, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we we want to dive back into those things uh, together again today. And and so we've kind of been walking through our mission statement as as we see it described here in Acts chapter 2 with the with the early church. And today we're going to come uh, full circle here to uh, really the first statement in our vision statement, which is about the fact that we exist to glorify God. And so we're going to talk today about how we glorify God together in some particular ways. Now, as we think about what it means to worship God or how we might glorify God uh, as his people, um, there's lots of thoughts about this and there's lots of ways that we might choose to go about this but god has given us some specific instructions in his word about how we're to glorify him and as we're going to see this morning god has given us some specific tools that we're meant to use to bring glory to his name and we do this as a corporate body as the body of christ as his church gathered together let's look at these things this morning again our mission statement very simply I want us to read this out loud together and just to remind ourselves, again, why do we come together as Corinth Baptist Church? Let's read this out loud together. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who gather together to worship Christ, grow together in the word of Christ, and go together as witnesses for Christ. Simply, this is what we're about. This is what God has called us to be and to do. And, and as we think about that this morning, I wanted to bring out some things that we may not have looked at in, in recent days, but kind of go back to uh, some of our statements uh, of faith, some of the things that we have said we believe, and these have not been things that we just adopted recently. These have been things that we adopted decades and decades ago as we have been growing as, as a church and from our own statement of faith, right there in our bylaws, we make this very first statement about who we are as Corinth Baptist Church, that we adhere to the Bible as the inspired, inerrant word of God. It's got to start there. Again, what did they devote themselves to? But the apostles teaching the word of God is central to everything that we do. And we base our every doctrine, our every belief upon the authority of scripture. Our church subscribes to the Baptist faith and message as adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000. And its ordinances are symbolic 
and our baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, that may sound to you like three disconnected statements, but they're included in one paragraph for a reason. As we're going to see today, baptism and the Lord's Supper serve as living pictures of what we're about as the people of God, our devotion to his word and to one another. And so as we look at these scriptures today, we see the early church devoting themselves to baptism, devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper, and devoting themselves to the work of the Lord. That's going to be our three main points today that we're going to look at as we walk through these scriptures. So let's begin with baptism. What is baptism and what Peter called them to when he called them out of their unbelief and into belief in Jesus Christ? And the result was that they were baptized on that day, 3,000 souls. By baptism, we mean this. Baptism is the primary entrance into the local church. Now, there's lots of ways that we might think about entering into the church. Sometimes we think about entering into the church. You entered in through these front doors this morning, but I mean something greater than that. Sometimes we think about entering into a church by moving our membership from one church to the other. And and, and again, I want to think about something deeper and greater and better than that. When we think about entering into the church, our primary thought ought to be of this gift God has given us called baptism. And I'm not saying that just because we're a Baptist church, though that is a very core and key to our identity as a church. But, but I'm saying that because this is a gift of God. God has given us this gift of baptism, a a picture of the gospel that we might understand what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And so from our Baptist faith and message, our statement of faith, it says this Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And this is what we have said. This is what we believe about baptism here at Corinth Baptist Church. And I know in other churches they may teach this differently, but we want to come back to what we believe because of what we believe the Bible teaches. Again, we just didn't make up this statement of faith. These were, they were, they were men who spent time crafting this statement so that, and based upon the Word of God so that we would know what the Bible teaches about this issue of baptism. And so let me just give you a couple of uh, quick thoughts this morning that kind of help us understand why baptism is necessary to the identity of the church. It's not just some peripheral thing that we do just when, when, when somebody gives their heart and life to Jesus, but, but this is something that's very crucial for the very identity of the church. And so this primary entrance, first of all, we must understand this. We need to understand the biblical order related to baptism. And the biblical order is simply this, that 
belief must occur before baptism. We, we believe in believers' baptism. We, we don't practice infant baptism. We, we don't practice any other kind of baptism than believers' baptism. When someone comes to faith in Christ, as they did in Acts chapter 2, when they came to faith in Christ and they said, what must we do? Peter says, believe in Jesus. And then the follow-up is what? They were baptized. That, that was the immediate follow-up to their belief was this act of obedience known as bapt- baptism, being immersed in water, not sprinkled or poured over, but immersed in water. And why, why immersion? Because of what it pictures. Because immersion is a right picture of the gospel. Think about some pictures that, that we're accustomed to in our culture. One would be the wedding ring. We understand the symbolism of a wedding ring, that if I'm wearing a a, a ring on the third finger of my left hand, that that means that I'm married. Now, in other cultures, they have other symbols of what it means to be married. Perhaps in in another culture, uh, they wear a, a necklace of chicken bones to represent that they're married. If I wear a necklace of chicken bones, you don't understand anything but that I'm weird. But when you see this ring, the symbol reminds you that I am married to Beth. The same thing with baptism. We've got to get the symbolism right. Being immersed in water represents dying with Christ. And being brought back out of that water represents being raised to the newness of life. It's a, it's a symbol that represents something necessary, something that we need to understand and we need to be picturing it rightly. It's something that sprinkling or pouring water over someone simply doesn't get the picture right. It's kind of like chicken bones around my neck. And so we, we need to get the picture right, but we also need to get this order right. That baptism without belief in Jesus is simply taking an odd bath in church. And, and this is kind of weird. And so let me show you from the scriptures this morning. I want to walk through some chapters here in the book of Acts. And let's see uh, some biblical evidence for how baptism is predicated upon belief. That belief always occurs before baptism. We see right here in Acts chapter 2. They put their faith in Jesus and then it says, and so those who received his word, that's an act of faith. When we receive the word of God, that means that we are believing that what the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true and that it's true for the salvation of our souls and the changing of our lives. Those who received his word were baptized. Acts 2, 41. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 8. As the gospel expands through the teaching of the church, it goes from there in Jerusalem that we saw in Acts chapter 2. It goes to a place called Samaria. And we go from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of one of the other disciples known as Philip. And Philip gets the privilege of leading a great revival in Samaria as he preaches the word of God. It says in Acts chapter 8 verse 12, But when they believed Philip... Notice that when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what happened? They were baptized, both men and women. First belief, then baptism. 
Acts chapter 10. We go from Jerusalem to Samaria, now to a city called Caesarea. And for the first time, the gospel is proclaimed to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and they are hearing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ for the first time in a house of a, of a man named Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 47, then Peter declared, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is always tied to belief in Christ. And so, again, we have belief before baptism, but they believed they received the Holy Spirit. And then Peter said, these folks need to be baptized And so they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Acts chapter 16, flip over a couple more pages. We come to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and we see in Acts chapter 16, Paul ministering in the city of Philippi, the very city to which the letter to the Philippians was written. And in Acts chapter 16, it says in verse 13, that on the Sabbath day, We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now notice this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul proclaims the word to this gathering of ladies by the riverside. Lydia heard the word. She believed the word. And then the result of that was she was baptized. We need to get the order right. It happens again here in Acts 16. Move down to verse 29. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison because of their ministry in Philippi. And the Philippian jailer uh, has an amazing experience that I don't have time to get into. You want to read this and see the power of God on display for the, the salvation of this Philippian jailer. But beginning in verse 29, it says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and he said, listen to this question. It sounds like Acts chapter 2. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember what they asked in Acts chapter 2? What should we do? What shall we do because of of this hearing of the gospel? Same question happening here. And they said, notice what they said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And notice this. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Why was the Philippian jailer baptized? Because he believed in Jesus. And that was the right Step to follow belief before baptism. One more, and then we'll move on. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Paul continues his ministry now in the city of Corinth. 
our namesake here at Corinth Baptist Church. Not the most glorious of churches in the New Testament, but we'll take it. Acts chapter 18, verse 8 says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, notice the order here, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. You say, all right, preacher, I get it. But we need to get this. We need to understand this biblical order and how essential it is in the life of the church because we need to get the entry point right. Entry into the church does not just come through natural birth. Entry into the church does not come just through walking an aisle and saying, hey, I want to be a member. Entry into the church does not come through filling out a membership application or taking the membership class or all the other things that that we attach to that. And those are right and good things. But primary entry into the church takes place through this gift of God known as baptism. And I say that this morning to say to us, we need to prize this gift of baptism. We need to prize believers' baptism that those who have trusted Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls would see it is right and good and true for us to follow Him in this gift of baptism. But what's the picture of baptism? Yes, it pictures the death of burial and resurrection of Christ. But uh, I got to center the teaching of a pastor named Chad Vegas. He pastors out in California. Uh, but I got to center his teaching last weekend while we were at this conference. And, and he mentioned something about baptism that I had just never really considered before. And I want to set it before you as best as I can uh, this morning. That part of the biblical picture of baptism is that it's a, a naming ceremony. Now, now, if you think about names, especially in the Bible, names had a great gravity to them. And in various places in Scripture, when God was doing a great work in someone's life, He changed their name. So what does God do with Abraham and with his wife Sarah? As He's enacting His covenant among them. Part of that work was God changes His name from Abram to Abraham. And from Sarai to Sarah. He changes their name as a part of that great work. And when God was doing a great work in the life of Jacob, as God was revealing himself to Jacob, he said, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, which becomes the name of the entire people that came from his line, that they would be known as the Israelites. That was the name that God gave him later in his life. And we see this in various places in Scripture, God changing things. And even Jesus picks up on this, and he does the same thing with with, with Peter. He said, you're no longer going to be Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. We see this various places where even in the life of the the apostle Saul, he says, you're no longer going to be Saul, you're going to be Paul. There's a, a changing of name that represents a change of identity as this person is, is seeing the revelation of God in their life for the first time as they're coming to faith in Jesus. And, and baptism is a picture of this. We have a new name as those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who've trusted him by faith. And so I, I want to 
I want to kind of make an illustration of that this morning related to a couple of our families that have experienced uh, new births. And I already know the response I'm going to get with this next slide this morning or what I should get. All the ladies. There it is. Thank you. I just heard the little rumble of awes that went through the crowd. And that's exactly the uh, the <laughs> response I was looking for. But these are two of, of our new additions, new additions to our member families here at Corinth. Just a couple of weeks ago, Olivia Renee Schick was born. And she's got three older siblings and has a lot in front of her in that household. We are thankful for God's gift of Olivia. The name Olivia means peace. And as we think about little Olivia this morning, I want you to ask this question. What authority did Stephen and Stephanie, her parents, have to give her the name Olivia Renee Schick? Why not Olivia Stennett or Olivia Henderson or Olivia Rupert? Their authority to give her her name was based upon the fact that they were the ones that brought her into this world that were a part used by God to give her life. They have authority as her parents to name her. In the same way, when we experience the new birth, God has authority to give us a new name as well. And just this week, we got the joy of hearing that, that Jane Elizabeth Matthews was born to the Matthews family. And again, why to the Matthews family and not the Kinzer family or, or not the Stevenson family or not the Williams family? Why did they have the authority to name her Jane Elizabeth Matthews? By the way, the name Jane means God is merciful. Why do they have that authority to name her? Because they were used of God to give birth to her. She was placed in their family. They have the authority that none of us, none of us in this room had the authority to name little Jane. Only her parents. Because they gave birth to her. And in the same way, church, let's understand very clearly that when we experience the new birth, through faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is implanted within us by the power of God. And then we follow in this thing called believer's baptism. This is a naming ceremony. We have a new name. We belong to the one true and living God. He has placed his name upon us. Just as Stephen Schick placed the name Olivia upon his new daughter, and just as Andrew Matthews placed the name Jane upon his new daughter, so God places upon us His name, His covenant name, when we become one of His people. And baptism is a symbol, a, a picture of that new name, that new birth, that new identity in Christ. It's part of our calling. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that he says, in the name, not the names. The one name of God, the three persons of the Trinity. We see it right there in our commission, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you 
And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I spent a long time on baptism this morning, so we're going to have to fly through the last two points, but let's get to it. The second way we glorify God together is through the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a pictorial expression of the local church. It's the primary picture that we are displaying to the lost and dying world. Now, we preach the gospel in words, and then we portray the gospel in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. These things we call the ordinances. These are pictures of the gospel that we act out in the body of Christ. Baptism being a one-time thing that we do with new believers, and then the Lord's Supper being a regular thing as often as we do it, which here at Corinth we've chosen in this, in this season to do, it, to do it monthly. We're going to celebrate that Lord's Table this morning. Again, from the Baptist Faith and Message. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. So again, a symbolic act. There's nothing in these elements that we'll take this morning that, that has any saving effect. There's, there's nothing that's going to, to cause you to be in right standing with God because you take of this, this bread and, and this fruit of the vine. No, it's not that. It's a symbol Again, think about the wedding ring. The wedding ring does not make me married. It's simply a symbol that I am married. And that's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It doesn't make us right with God, but it is a symbol that we are right with God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the finished work of Christ. And so again, there's a biblical order here. The biblical order of baptism was belief occurs before baptism. The biblical order of the Lord's Supper is that baptism occurs before the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread being a a, a terminology for the Lord's Supper here in Acts 2 and in other places uh, throughout the scriptures. But baptism is the prerequisite for coming to the Lord's table in the gathered church. And by the way, believers... We are commanded by Christ to come to the Lord's table. Now, not to come lightly, not to come without examining ourselves, not to come without confessing our sins, not to come without making sure that our relationships with one another are in in good and rightful order. But, But understanding that the call to come to the Lord's table is not optional. By the way, when I call my children to the supper table, they don't get to opt out on that. Now, that may happen in your house, but at my house, when dad calls the kids to the supper table, you have somewhere in the realm of 37 seconds to be there. And we've had to have some discussions about that recently as they will find things. Oh, well, let me just finish this. No, no. Supper is ready. Get to the table. Church. Supper is ready. The grace of God is available. The voice of God calls us to his table. And we don't have the option to opt out. We don't get to say, hey, dad, can I just eat in my room tonight? That's a good way to get your butt worn out of my house. And we're not going to eat in front of the TV And we're not going to go outside on the picnic table. First of all, it's January. 
But we're going to come to the table and we're going to eat together because we're a family. That's what it means to be the church, folks. We're a family. And so we come to the table. But baptism occurs before that. There's a lot of scriptures we could get into, but let me just show you Acts chapter 20. We looked at Acts 18. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, says that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, notice the purpose of their gathering. They came together for the breaking of bread, part of this, the Lord's Supper. When we were gathered together to break bread, it says Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, I'm not going to go that long this morning. You ought to read the rest of that account, though. God does an amazing thing there in Acts chapter 20, but... The purpose that they were coming together was to hear the preaching of the word, the gospel made verbal, and then to observe the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the gospel made visible. That was the purpose of their gathering. It was not peripheral to their gathering. It was the purpose of their gathering. They came together for the breaking of bread and to hear the preaching of the word. And those two things were tied together inseparably. So what is the picture of the Lord's Supper? It's a picture of a united fellowship. If you go back to Acts 2.42, it talks about the early church was devoted to. If you go back to Acts 2.42, you'll notice that the breaking of bread and fellowship are, are residing together between the teaching of the apostles and the prayers. So it's the word of God and prayer are the, are the first and last in the list. It's the fellowship and the breaking of bread that are positioned next to one another in the center. I don't don't think it's by accident. I don't think they were just throwing out random things that the church liked to do together. No, they were saying these things are meant to be held together. And so when we come to the Lord's table, as we're going to do this morning, we are picturing not just our fellowship with God, not just the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 says, but, but we're picturing our fellowship, our commonality, our unitedness with one another. And so again, when I call my children to the table, I'm not just calling them to come have supper with me. I'm calling them to come have supper with one another. That's why, by the way, it's not the Lord's Supper if you're just having it in your living room. I know there's lots of churches that are struggling with how do we do the Lord's Supper in a time like this when a lot of our folks can't meet together. And there's a reality that we can't do what God has called us to do if we're not coming together. So again, there's an essential nature to the gathering. Part of the essential nature is the table. We must come to the table, so we must come together. Part of our fellowship. First John 1 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Now, if you look at that verse, there's only one thing that I, I find maybe just a little bit odd. He starts there. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's our relationship with the Lord, right? He ends the verse, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's our relationship with the Lord. We're talking vertical relationship here. But then in the very middle, he describes our horizontal relationship. He could have said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. But he didn't say that, did he? That's true. Don't don't discount that in any way. 
But he says here, no, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our vertical relationship with God is bookending our horizontal relationships with one another. These two are tied inseparably. That's why Jesus said the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks from now about what it means for us to love one another. Finally, this morning. We glorify God together by baptism, by the Lord's Supper, and we glorify God together by the Lord's work. The Lord's work, the the path, this is the path of expansion for the local church. Look at verse 47 of our text. In verse 47, it says, as they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I know I mentioned this a few weeks back, but I want to mention it again today. Apart from the work of Almighty God, everything that we are doing as Corinth Baptist Church, as God's redeemed people, Everything that we're about is utterly meaningless apart from the work of Almighty God. It's not enough just for us to go through the motions. Come together, sing some songs, hear some preaching, take the Lord's Supper, see some folks baptized. It's not enough for us to do those actions and activities apart from... From the movement of God's Spirit among us, apart from the empowering of God for His work, we are wasting our time. And I'm not just talking about on Sunday morning. I'm talking about all of our time is wasted unless God is at work in us. The glorious thing is He's promised to be at work in us. So we have that assurance. Again, a biblical order here. First, God works for our salvation, and then we work from our salvation. So you go to Ephesians 2, and what does it say? We're saved by grace through faith, but it's not of ourselves. It's not of works, lest we should boast. But then Ephesians 2.10 says, then we become his workmanship, literally his work of art. We become a living example of God's work, of, of God's power to transform it's all of His grace. We see a similar thing in Philippians 2, which says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Notice this central phrase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If that's all it said, we would need to have a lot of fear and trembling even more than we do. But notice the empowering that comes next. For it's God who works in you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you. So for those who are struggling with, well, is it my work or, or God's work? What's the deal here? God's work is primary. He accomplishes the fullness of salvation. He doesn't need our prayers or our bended knees. He doesn't need our contrition or our repentance. God does the work of salvation from beginning to end. And then, and then graciously, He invites us into His great work. 
God works for our salvation and then we work from our salvation. What's the biblical picture? We'll end here this morning. The biblical picture that we see here in the book of Acts and that we would desire to see displayed in the day in which we live is the biblical picture of the church as a victorious army. Now, I know as we look around at the church, especially the church in America today, we don't look much like a victorious army from the world's perspective. In fact, as Paul told the church at Corinth, not many of us are much in the eyes of the world. We look like the losing team so often. And yet, I dare say, if we could see things from heaven's perspective, we would be radically changed. C.S. Lewis wrote that if the lowliest saint, the lowliest Christian could be seen in terms of what they'll be in heaven, we would be tempted to worship them. This is not to elevate us in pridefulness. This is to elevate us in a biblical understanding that God has called us into His victory. He is not asking us to accomplish His victory. Jesus didn't say on the cross, I've done all I can, now it's your turn. No, He said, it's finished, it's done. Everything necessary for the salvation of my people is complete in this moment. But then by His grace, He extended to us a role in the victory parade as we proclaim the gospel, the good news of His victory over sin and death and the grave. And as we invite people to come and to enjoy fellowship with Him, to come to His table through baptism, to come into His church, not just as a Sunday morning gathering, but as the gathered people of God, the family of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so our call is this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Paul's been extolling the glories of the resurrection for 57 verses. And here's how he concludes, and this is how I'll conclude this morning. Therefore, because of these things, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding, overflowing with the work of the Lord. And here's the assurance. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's a Sunday school teacher. Your labor is not in vain. Parents who are seeking to instill the gospel in your children, your labor is not in vain. Those of you that have been pleading in prayer for family members and friends and co-workers that don't know Jesus Christ, and you've been pleading before God's throne of grace, your labor is not in vain. It will produce the exact fruit that God set for it before the foundation of the world. 
God is at work. He is doing exactly what His good, pleasing, and perfect will would accomplish. He cannot be thwarted. The victory has already been won. And so let us work from that victory to His glory. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, You have set before us such a beautiful and glorious picture May our thoughts of your church be elevated in these days. Lord, keep us from any pride in these things, but cause us to think biblically about who we are as your redeemed people. We have nothing that we have not received from you, and yet we have received from you eternal riches, a glorious inheritance. A great commission. So may we walk in these things. As we come to your table this morning. Father, would you move us. The stirring reminder of the gospel that has saved us. The gospel that we are called to proclaim until you come again. We make this our prayer today, Lord, in Jesus name.